if you don't believe in the kind of God who will hear your prayers and respond and intervene in your life, 75% of Americans who don't believe in that God seldom or never attend any kind of religious service. Whereas 75% of people who do believe essentially in what would be the God of scripture, the God, yes. the all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God, who, yes, who would hear your prayers, does care about you, sees you, understands you, and can intervene. If you believe in that, 75% attend services on a regular basis. It's wow. just that dramatic a difference. Welcome to the Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst in the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Leadership Podcast. I'm privileged today to speak with Sherry Waddell, who in so many ways is a a pioneer in the world of parish renewal, oddly enough, in the sense that everyone I've ever coached has had her book on their bookshelf of great readings. And so, Sherry, it's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Ron. This, This is gonna be fun, I think. I think it is too. You know, it's it's interesting that book you know growing intentional disciples it it really I've just heard a quote it so many times it's so inspirational it really it's really shone a light on something that probably so many people were experiencing but didn't have a language for what made you write the book ah, um well that was like being hit by lightning it, it, people keep thinking I have some kind of grand plan and I remember one woman said, what's your five-year plan? And I said, honey, I've got a two-year guess, and that's as close as it comes. Um, but so the, it, this is something God did while I was trying to do something else, um, basically. Uh, it all, of course, everything we learned came out of the years we had spent helping people discern charisms, which involved spending an hour listening to every person just tell us their story and one of the questions. Right we learned to ask was, could you just briefly describe, you know, your relationship with God or your experience with God to this point in your life? And then the stunning stuff would come out of people's mouths that most of us didn't even know was there. And that was what raised the issue of, are our people, that's how we learned a lot of them didn't, Mm. they did not understand themselves to have a relationship with God and they made it very clear. And yeah. so that sent us off wrestling with the gap between people who could be very active in the parish, attending mass regularly, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They had been through all, received all their sacraments, et cetera. But the essential thing was still missing. And uh, as they told us, I mean, they told us this, we did not presume it. We were not judging them. We were just listening. To yeah. trying to and trying to take seriously what they told us instead of just, you know, dismissing it and saying, well, that can't possibly be true. Um, and and you have to understand. So we've had what 100, at least 140,000 people as of last summer go through the called and gifted process all over the world. Right. So that's the scale we're talking about. Yeah, it's a big study. That, it's a big been... study, and. And it took you know years of listening to even let it in to to realize yeah. what I was hearing, 
and what other people, because obviously there are many other people working with me in this who are listening. Right. And um, and so it's uh, so that was that was the core. And then we spent uh, another 15 years trying to talk about it uh, in Catholic circles and in our mm -hmm. making disciples seminars and stuff and got enormous pushback. Uh, people were angry. They would implode. I mean, I the stories, yeah. I could tell you story after story, but people would just get, they would go into tears. I'd have to shut everything down, take them outside, calm them down, listen. Give to me them. one story, like uh, <laughs> if you can, or maybe maybe <laughs> blend a couple together so you don't give anybody away, but what was it that they were so upset about? It like, what varied was, all the time. Yeah. That's the thing that every time I'd listen to one, I'd go, oh, I've got it now. Now I get it. And then the next time they'd be blow up for a different reason. Um, but what it all came back to in the end, basically, was, mm. um, okay, one true story, and this is uh, yes. was happened in public, so I can I feel like I can talk about it. Um, okay. We had, I started a little blog called Intentional Disciples, and within two weeks, it had started a firestorm across the Catholic blogosphere, front, mm. on, both on the right and on the left and in the middle, um, and as Amy Wellborn wrote it, she said it was unintentional mega blogging. But what, and all I had done was talk about discipleship and people were, what they were angry about was the language intentional discipleship. Who basically did I think I was? I was judging right. people. I was being elitist. I was all this stuff. And, you know, so it became an eight, this, it just took over. It just went huh. global overnight. And we just started using the language just as in desperation, you know, just for practical reasons, not for um, any, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't a brand. People thought I was creating a brand. I'm like, are you kidding? No, I was just trying to find a way to convey that it was something that didn't happen in your sleep. You don't become right. a disciple unconsciously. You don't, you know, wake up one morning and God has zapped you or whatever. And, and <laughs> yes, yeah, so from the very beginning, and we discovered it was fascinating because it was across all the spectrum, was the whole spectrum. Mm. Uh, from, so it didn't matter where you were on the ecclesial spectrum or anything, people were equally right. pissed by the, by the whole <laughs> language. You really hit a nerve, didn't you? Oh, man. So that's, <laughs> I spent 15 years basically having those conversations over and mm. over again. Um, at all levels of the church's life as we traveled. And so when uh, the book, of course, happened, uh, basically um, my an editor at OSV who had mm -hmm. been talking to me about charisms and discernment, and I had said, well, yes, yes, I'll write a book about that someday, but I don't have time. Um, she wrote me again and said, Sherry, are you, you know, thinking about a book? And I said, well, you know, I think it's time, but I've already started this thing because it was 20 11 and um we there was a possibility we would be we might be sharing at in rome at the conference on mm. evangelization or whatever that was coming up the next year and um and so i said but this but this other thing has come up and so i've been i've been sort of trying to outline you know basically the the a book along just about this and yeah. then when i'm done with that i'll do the charism thing and uh and she said oh no Give me everything you have. I have an acquisitions meeting in three hours. And so <laughs> Good basically, Good <laughs> I took all I had was, you know, an outline of the twelve chapters, and you know, sort of, and I did it, threw it together, 
this was six o'clock in the morning. So here I'm at 6.30 a.m., right? Are you a morning person or yeah, hopefully you are? Yeah. Sending it back to the East Coast um, and in time for her meeting. And she wrote, she wrote me back, you know, six hours later and said, we want your book. So that it was literally wow. like that. It, my whole life revolved on a dime. It changed everything. I spent the next five months trying to get that out. Got it in at 6 p.m. on the due date. And and then it, when it was published, it just went viral. And it did, didn't it? It, it sold out in two weeks. And and I, I kept, and I know nothing about publishing. So I kept saying, is this good? Is this like, what? You know, Should have been one this? week. Like, I mean, I had no idea. Book. They kept saying, oh, this is good. This is good. I'm like, it, it's good. Okay, why is it good? You know, and I, I would go, I said, well, how long can I expect something like this to last? I mean, isn't this weird? Yeah. Or, And they would say, oh, Sherry, this was about, this was about six <laughs> oh, months Sherry. in. Oh, Sherry. They said, oh, Sherry, it's just begun. Um, right. You know, so, yeah, I mean, nobody, anybody who I, I didn't have a grand plan. This was not mm. my idea. None right. of this has been my idea all the way along. It has just mm -hmm. been what's missing. You know, just asking the question, what's missing? Where's the gap, between, the living mm. gap between what the church is calling us to, what she says, uh, what Jesus asked us to do? and what we're living as Catholics. Yeah. And mm. so that's I'm so Yeah. It's so practical too, because growing up for me, I remember being eight years old and I kind of tell the story from time to time, but just being an altar boy and we we're singing this song, they will know we are Christians by our love, <laughs> right? And so, and I think, and this isn't true, but it's not because I didn't want it to be true, but it wasn't my lived experience. Even as a young boy, it was very much like, this isn't this, like, don't we know this isn't true? But we all want it to be true. But there was a, I saw that gap as a young boy. I feel felt it. And, no, and I, was, I, went, I have to say, yeah, no, you're also from an evangelical background like me, right? No, no, actually grew up in the Roman Catholic faith, you believe did. it or okay, not. Somehow yeah. I thought yeah. I got the wrong impression. Um, I I'm an evangel evangelical person at heart, which I found out later okay. on which is part of the struggle I had as a young boy oh, with the church. Okay. It's like, I don't know how to tell anybody. I don't see anybody telling anybody and I don't know how, yeah. but for some reason I had this burning passion. It was only later that I found out that was one of my charisms, but yeah. yeah I was gonna say charisms triumph over almost anything. Um, that's always fascinating. That's another Even story. your denomination, that's right, yeah, <laughs> um, tradition. But, uh, but yeah, okay, well then that makes sense. Whereas I, uh, um, I had been, when I became Catholic as a, as a young adult, I I yes. was already preparing. I was I was a missionary wannabe, um, right. preparing to be a missionary to the Muslim world. Which oh, talk wow. about something that Catholics had no concept of. Um, <laughs> and when I became Catholic, I didn't know what to do because I I tried to describe what I was doing, and people just again, right. you know, I came from a different planet. Um, and I knew nothing about being Catholic because it was an anti-Catholic planet on top of it. So, uh, so yeah. So anyway, so it's been a long, long journey uh, and learning wow. curve for me. Uh, yeah. And that's why I had to listen. The only way I could figure it out was by listening to Catholics and, yes. and say, tell me more. Help me understand what it's been like for you or what you know. Yeah. Um, that's how I figured most of it out. 
That's so beautiful. And isn't that the whole synodal process that the whole global church has been trying to go through is just, hey, I got an idea. We should listen to each other. It's like, hey, that's, let's give it a try. Maybe we can't it was, lose. I mean, I, you've I, been doing was, that a long time. Exactly. I was trying to listen. I mean, I took church teaching very seriously. I was listening to that. And then I was, but I was listening to people just as seriously. Yes. And then trying to go, okay, like, how does this work? I mean, right. you know. Yeah, you were doing all this work. My understanding, you're doing all this work with, with, with helping people understand their charisms and they didn't know Christ. It's like, oh, that's why they're just not. They're struggling to discern. I went, oh, oh, you're kidding me. I mean, right. it was like there was no category in my head for this. Why would you waste your time? I didn't understand right? it all. I came from a world you either it was either it was profoundly real and personal to you, or you yes. just didn't waste your time. Right. The idea that the, that there could be a whole Christian culture and civilization and all this the riches that the church has, where a large number of people, not everyone, obviously we have great saints of all kinds, but yes, but a large number of people didn't have that or didn't even know it was a thing. Uh, it was the greatest discovery of my life. I didn't even know it was possible. <laughs> Well, it certainly makes sense, and, and, and maybe you'd heard before, but certainly I've heard it, you know, the Catholic Church is a sleeping giant if it ever woke up and, and stepped into its identity as as, as baptized mm -hmm. missionaries, like <laughs> priest, prophet, and king. If we ever truly stepped into that, oh my gosh, we're forced to be reckoned with. And so, Absolutely. so much of your work has really, and here's my experience of it, Sherry, is is you know because you know your story kind of is the same as father james's is that he was trying to do something else and god had a different plan and so right. you know the whole idea of writing the book that wasn't his idea and uh and then once it was written it was like uh oh we're in trouble and and you know we're just trying to make this church amazing and help a few other people but this just took us in a completely different direction including coaching and trying to help other pastors uh learn to lead out of teams and everything but 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 what I kept seeing was your book convicted them. It was the, okay, I agree, we have a problem. But it was the first, like so many of them, like we have a problem and here's here's the evidence and it would be your book. And it would, and it's like this, this evidence is my experience. Therefore, I agree we have a problem. Now let's go about repairing it. It's like, yahoo, because you can't right. solve something if we don't agree there's a problem. And, and I think your book uncovered that, oh, wait a minute, this, you know, after you dealt with your blog <laughs> blowing up and, and all the people pushing back, so all, all the stuff that happened before the book was published, you'd been living it for how long? 15 years. 15 years. Yeah, and learning, learning what not to, learning where the triggers were learning where the the mm -hmm. vacuums the gaps of uh, were and mm -hmm. learning how to be able to talk about it in ways that got through which mm -hmm. was part of the fruit of that um i would never have been able to write fid uh without that 15 years of failure mm -hmm. apparent consistent perpetual mm -hmm. failure i often felt like you know I don't know why you're asking me to do this, God, because surely there's someone out there who's better qualified or who, who can get it across, who has 
yeah. whatever that winsomeness or that capacity to you know all yeah. those things you think you imagine um are needed yeah yeah uh, so yeah but it's yeah so i i think the thing is we were all having the same conversations i think what i learned in listening mm -hmm. to people so many of us were up against the same was i felt like i used to feel like there was mm -hmm. this force field this invisible force field that kept everything we were doing from hitting people from getting mm -hmm. through that god's love god's mercy god's presence his yeah. grace wasn't somehow hitting home and it turned out we were all having the same conversation. Many of us were asking exactly yeah. the same converse, same questions. Yes. Uh, that's what became clear when the book came out. So I thought, well, yay, praise God. But um, yeah, it's it opened, of course, all kinds of doors. And then I got yes. to listen to, and then I spent a lot of time listening to clergy um, yes. and uh, bishops and all kinds of people in leadership religious and yeah. everything when the book came out and they they all said to me you know a lot of them privately these were private conversations <laughs> obviously yeah. um and they'd say you know i wasn't a disciple when i was yes. ordained when i took my vows when i was mm -hmm. installed as archbishop or whatever or yes. when i you know began my leadership whatever whatever mm -hmm. the category was i am now i'll tell you what happened and then i got to hear that story which is great but it, we weren't consistently, the difference I've seen, because I just we just did a 10th anniversary edition of Forming Intentional Disciples, just came out. And I revised the first chapter that everybody hated with all those nasty stats, because um, I'm like the queen of bad news. So, um, <laughs> but I figured we'd all pretty much figured out that part by now, yeah. so I rewrote that. Um, but <laughs> and part of it was be able to say how different the conversation is now. Uh, nice you know in, in 10 years all, later just yeah. yeah 10 years later almost at every level and not just in the united states but around the world right. uh because of course the book has been translated and sold and been read yeah. in a lot of places that we've worked in and um uh, so it that i mean it's like you say it is at least we now we use we use the j word now we will use we will name the man who could not be named we will talk about jesus <laughs> And use the language and personal the name all names. language yeah, and yeah. all of that. And now yeah. that's become very, very common, which is mm. incredibly exciting. It's um, a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. I remember doing some work with uh, get, getting ready to have a conversation with a diocese. It was a big diocese. And yeah. It was the, you know, we're just getting set up so you could hear what was going on in the background for them. Sure. And, and I was walking by trying to get my stuff ready. And all of a sudden I heard one person say, wasn't it great that father so-and-so said he never talks about Jesus? And I went, what? And so I go back to the screen, stick my face in the screen and say, uh, did, did I hear you correctly? Did you say you have a priest that doesn't talk about Jesus? They said, yeah. I said, did you say that was great? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, I hope he isn't in ministry anymore or he doesn't have influence. No, he's one of our most influential priests. Okay, help me understand why that's great. Well, because he was so honest. I'm thinking, oh dear Lord Almighty, please help us. Like, <laughs> No, like, but seriously, I get it. Because to even be able to articulate, to recognize that and be able to articulate it. Yeah represents a big change from 10 years ago 
Yes. And uh, so I get why they're saying that's positive because, it, and he used the name. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and right. yeah, you know, so it's, it's, uh, but yeah, prior to that, but it, the change has been dramatic. It's so beautiful. I, I was talking, actually, one of the other podcasts, Father Pierluigi, his name was, uh, or is, and uh, he used to be a formator for 18 years before he took his first wow. parish in wow. Australia. And, um, and then he went on a, you know, try to bring parish to life and learned a time. He's just so humble in his approach and his collaboration with the lay people. It's like, I don't know how to be a parish priest. You're going to have to help me. Let's do this together. And I just loved mm -hmm. his approach. He was so honest and, and real. And, mm -hmm. and so they went on this journey together and there were different seasons of breakthrough. So yeah. new things were required at different seasons for breakthrough. And, and he's just doing amazing work. And I asked him, I said, if you went back to formating now, like if you went back into the seminary now, what what do you know now that would change how you would go about doing that? And what he said, Sherry, totally surprised me. I thought, you know, oh, I'd teach some leadership or I'd help them understand their gifts. And he said, I wouldn't assume they knew Jesus. Bingo. Whoa. The, the first time I ever asked a vocation director, I was at in, I was. I won't name the place. I was sure. Um, yes, please. <laughs> but anyway, he was. Yeah. I said. I said. Okay, help me understand. Are your the guys who come to discern vocation, mm -hmm. you know, who are just beginning the discernment process, are they disciples? And he said, No, none of them. I said, well, Okay, like, all right, blow me away. Help me understand. <laughs> Uh, like, why? And he said, well, none of them know that that's a thing. Nobody ever told mm -hmm. them about it. Now, after FID, the Forming Intentional Disciples came out, um, I had another vocation uh, director for meeting him for breakfast and uh, asked him the same question. This time he had the book on the table with him, you know, <laughs> let me know he'd read it. Um, I said, okay, fine. I said, but what, what do you think? And he said, oh, no, we're very aware. We, you know, we do this and this and this because we know that relationship with Christ is absolutely central. And as we all know, of course, they've just done a massive revision of the whole uh, formation process and the whole, the whole, you know, whole years of being devoted this to this now. But he said, but he says, then he went on, he said, but the thing is, none of my men knows how to help anybody else become a disciple. Right. Well, and that's what I want to talk about next with you because I love how you break down the thresholds like again me it was just this giant frustration because I could see a gap uh, I saw people leaving in droves in my generation I'm 53 and so the churches were full when I was a kid but boy I just watched my age group and their parents and grandparents peel away from the church and not think anything of it yeah. and 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 so I was frustrated and then I did the craziest thing ever and I started reading scripture and I just I couldn't read scripture and not hear go make disciples and it's like but I don't know how like I don't see anybody doing it I don't know how and so just within me grew this judgment and frustration and and anger and oh I wasn't very fun I just but this was God's way of slowly waking me waking me up and say Ron I'm talking to you I'm not talking to everybody else stop blaming everybody we're in a conversation here it's like oh I thought my job was to to, to blame everybody else it's like no sit down and stop being so foolish and 
but I didn't have the language. I was just trying hard, but mostly beating my head against the wall and learning things the hard way. So take us through, you know, right. what people can expect. Because Jesus says, go and make disciples. That that presupposes a process. You know, you make a cake. There, you, know, you don't just open up your oven and there it is. Like, there's a process. And yeah. so what have you learned? Oh, Share man. We've, and we've learned a lot since Forming Intentional Disciples came out, too. So right. sure. uh, we're constantly... Our, now, I, I should add, the thresholds have been incredibly useful. Uh, so we found them constantly very, still very, very significantly uh, important mm -hmm. in helping people understand that the journey is just a lot longer now than it used to be. You, I mean... Right. Um, what I did, I was—I just came back. I was in Australia uh, last month, and um, and I started off with a picture of "It's a Wonderful Life," and I said so. And it turned out to my—I was afraid that Australians hadn't seen the movie, but it turned out younger people were all aware of it, so it was great. Oh, neat! And so I was able to say, "Well, what happens at the beginning, right?" Because everybody, you're hearing all these people praying for George Bailey because he's in trouble, and Lord, oh, please help George Bailey. And the assumption was that the audience would all know that. You know, you didn't see anybody, but they were praying to God in heaven for this man on earth, and God would know and care and intervene, and they would send an angel that who is good was going to help him. And, you know, all the assumptions, and I said, and this came out in 1946 when right. you could make a movie like that. Okay. But now nobody's going to make a movie like that because you can't right. make any of those assumptions anymore. And so the, the, and what we're finding, um, especially the early journey, because huge numbers of even practicing Catholics, I mean, people in mass every weekend, mm. when you actually talk to them, you discover they don't yet have a lived relationship with God. They don't trust mm. God. They don't think God is interested in them uh, yeah. for all kinds of interesting reasons. Um, and it's so especially we've learned it's more important than ever to be aware of the journey that people make in the 21st century. The culture has right. changed so tremendously and it's never going to be, you're just raised in the church and you went through sacramental prep and you got your, all your sacraments of initiation and now you're good. And yeah. now you'll just show up for the rest of your life. Catholic that schools are making disciples. Really and, yeah. true. It right. is absolutely totally gone. Yeah. And, and so why do people leave? Well, honey, if they don't believe, there's a direct correlation. This is brand new stuff that just came out a few months ago, oh, a study. But basically, if you don't believe in the kind of God who will hear your prayers and respond and intervene in your life, 75% of Americans who don't believe in that God seldom or never attend any kind of religious service. Whereas 75% of people who do believe essentially in what would be the God of Scripture, the God, yes. the all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God, who, yes, who would hear your prayers, does care about you, sees you, understands you, and can intervene. If you believe in that, 75% attend services on a regular basis. It's wow. just that dramatic a difference. And that is where most people are starting now. They're not, we want to dump all this catechesis on them. They don't even believe in a personal God. So how are they going to be able to process Jesus is God? So therefore, huge numbers of them, they think he's a good guy. Everybody likes him. I mean, almost everybody in the world likes Jesus. 
even yeah. if you're not Christian or you have no Christian background, you think he's a good guy. Yes. But you don't think he's God and you don't believe, in, you know, that he was mm -hmm. incarnate and all this stuff about the death and resurrection, mm -hmm. all that. None of that follows because you don't even believe in God in the first place. Right. And so that that is so crucial and helping people move um, the the thresholds that I talked that you were referring to are basically sort of five stages mm -hmm. in a journey that's pre-discipleship. This is before you actually begin to follow Jesus as his disciple. It's the kind of journey a lot of people now in the 21st century are going to make, especially in the West. Mm -hmm. And that's all over the world. And wherever Western culture has reached, including parts of Asia and all of that, it seems to be applicable yep. everywhere we've worked. Um, and so there's... There's the first one is the first is the is there a bridge of trust in place some positive association with Christianity or Christ or or a church or even just a believing Christian you know somebody who you mm -hmm. like you may think their ideas are nuts you know you don't know why they do what they do but you like them anyway and they were really good to you and somehow they're your living bridge to the right. Christian world to the whole idea gotcha. of Christianity um, and to God and everything. And many people who would say, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist, I'm a nun, right. I'm a dun, I'm a whatever, but I have this friend, I have this family member, I have somebody who's that sort of bridge for me. Um, and so that that's the first thing is that bridge of trust. If there isn't any bridge of trust in place, if it was destroyed and often for, you know, through trauma mm -hmm. or yep. it never existed, that's the first missionary task. You've got to build the bridge because they can't take in anything else mm -hmm. without it. And so that's huge. And then the second sort of stage or threshold that we talk about is curiosity, which is mm -hmm. casual curiosity. It's not, it's not, will you marry me curiosity? It's like, oh, you're interesting. You want to go have coffee? It's at that right. level. Okay. We're not signing up for anything here. I'm not making a lifelong commitment. I'm just thinking, huh. That's interesting. You talk about God like mm. you can talk to God and God hears you. I didn't even know that was a thing. Is that a thing? You know? And 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 you may be able to talk a little bit with him. They'll go off and think about it for a while and they'll go, hmm. But, you know, he doesn't seem crazy. <laughs> Maybe, but he's not. Um, or she, you know. So it's, it's just that whole journey. Early curiosity is really crucial as people move. And then they become more and more curious. We want to foster their curiosity by mm -hmm. our stories, our testimony, our life experience, you know, just sharing as we go mm -hmm. along. Um, and then helping them begin to actually encounter Jesus at some levels, hearing the gospel mm -hmm. stories, for the, mm -hmm. probably for many of them for the very first time. Because mm -hmm. um, even evangelicals are no longer reading scripture in the way that they once did. So, and Catholics never did, really. So, um, and lots of other people. Hopefully and we're going in opposite directions, although we want we want our uh, evangelical brothers to read it too. And sisters, that's right. But, um, but hopefully we're starting to come Across the culture, there's, yes. uh, you know, we, we just can't presume. We're not in 1946. Yes. We cannot presume it's a wonderful life and that everyone will understand how that story begins. Yes. Um, and so that's part of it, helping them become more and more curious about Jesus and the faith. And then the crucial thing, what we didn't quite understand until about five years ago became clear for a lot of cradle Catholics, people born in the culture mm -hmm. like you yep. or yep. any number of people. And this, 
obviously there are many exceptions, but in general, right. I'm talking. Yes. Um, what they what for many of them hasn't happened is they do either have never experienced or do not have not. They may have been receiving communion, but they did not understand it as a personal relationship. 100%. They didn't believe God was a personal God who cared about them in that way. And as we listen, now that we know to ask this question, we ask, we've changed, uh, when we do gifts discernment, we've added a question or two to the process when we do the interviews. And one of them is, could you briefly describe your relationship or your experience of God to this point in your life? And the other is, we now say no to put in, and where is Jesus in all of this for you? Or something like that. Because a lot of Catholics, Jesus is not related to God. God is something else. As one woman, this became clear, uh, a woman came up to me and talked to me at a conference and, and said, you know, she grew up in a practicing family. I mean, these are these are people who are good people and good Catholic families. Or the guy who was yep. in full-time ministry, forming clergy, who'd grown up in a very committed Catholic family, mass every Sunday, just totally committed. Yep. And said, I, until I read your book last month, I did not know it was possible to have a relationship with God. And I'm like, wait a second, you're in full-time ministry forming clergy. You are a highly, highly committed. This is a good guy, a highly committed, yes. totally invested in the church kind of guy. And he says, well, we never talked about it. I literally didn't know it was possible. Right. That, that and that transition to is really the transition into the sort of the third threshold of openness. That's what we're finding is the most crucial transition right now for almost the vast majority of Catholics. And this is yeah. true even of leadership. It's true of priests. The Amen. first time I had, I was at a clergy day and a couple of priests walked, ran up to me at the first break and said, what if our brothers aren't disciples? And I'm like, oh, honey, you can't ask me that question. I said, well, first of all, I just totally freaked out because I said like, I can't answer that question. I don't know. You can't ask me that question. How dare you even think about that? How you dare you even raise the topic? I was so freaked out. Yeah. I didn't know what to say. And then I went to my Dominican co-director and I said, okay, so let me ask you that question. What do you think about your Dominican brothers? I said, what's your experience? Right. He goes, you can't ask me that question. I, don't, <laughs> I mean, I can't answer that question. That you know, I'm, it just we both went into had fits over the whole thing until we realized we better start asking the question um but yeah it just um so many of our people when we when we in a place where they're safe you've built trust yeah they can go anywhere they want and it will be fine there's no shame no blame mm. no nothing wherever yes. they are right now is good because that's where god's going to meet them wherever they've been is good amen you know, the whole, so it's very positive. And we just open the door and say, you know, we'd love to hear your story. And then this stuff comes out that just blows you away. And I would, my best guess now, this is just rough. There's no studies on this. Um, yep. This is just a workman's, you know, gotcha. rough estimate, working estimate. I would guess about half of even practicing Catholics have not moved into spiritual openness yet and have never had a living experience of, if you will, convert an encounter with God that they recognized as real and personal for themselves, where they could talk to God, 
and God, and they knew God was hearing and respond. That making mm -hmm. that transition is the single biggest challenge in front of us right now, since huge numbers of our people, and you can't move any further if you're if you're stuck. No. And a lot of our people and even our leaders are stuck in early curiosity. When they do that, what they do is they get very entranced. They have they talk all they talk about is uh, institutional stuff. Yep. Um, it's an institutional faith, and they talk Catholic gossip and Catholic insiders baseball, yeah. and, you know, all a lot that of devotionals, stuff. devotionals, like, like the, yep. and all that. But you, when you in a safe private place, and they were able to tell you, you know, but this is really where it is. Um, until that's addressed, they can't move any further. They will not grow up spiritually. They will not become disciples, much less emerge into full-blown apostleship, you know, and that maturation process, they're stuck. And the single biggest issue right now, pastoring everything we're doing, like we just revamped, called and gifted, intentionally to make it much more consciously evangelizing, because of course, I presume people were disciples when I created it long, you know, and thought <laughs> I was helping them become apostles and didn't know, yeah. the, the, all the, yeah, the, I didn't realize it was turtles all the way down. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> Before you go anywhere else, I want to come back to something. Yeah. Did you say, again, it's a workman's guess based yeah. on, or, or, or maybe not even get, but best estimate, maybe 50% of practicing Catholic. Okay, I want to put that into perspective. You said 50% of practicing Catholics. I know just here at, at our parish, at St. Benedict Parish, when I, when I was um, in leadership there, we had 47, our population was 47,000 in that area. 17,000 of them were self-proclaimed Catholics. Mm -hmm. Of those self-proclaimed Catholics, yeah. about 7% actually went to Mass on a week. 7%! That means 93% mm -hmm of self-proclaimed Catholics are not going to church regularly. Maybe, so what maybe, you're saying are you is talking, of are that- Are talking weekly here or monthly? Because in the US, the standard right. in practice became monthly to be practicing. So I always have to distinguish. Right. Yeah, so I don't know. So I don't know. So okay. so 7%, so we'd have about 14 pe 1,400 people at church on a weekend. And so you're right, so the, the, every week versus once a month or what have you. Or so totally. on a given weekend, if you're saying if you're saying roughly 7% or yes. on a given weekend. Yeah. Right, and so of that percent, only 50%. And so it's not like 50% of self-proclaimed Catholics. We're talking about 50% of practicing Catholics, which is su in Canada, such a small number of practicing Catholics. Right. And even half of those, like, it's bigger in the U.S., of course, but yeah. Yes, oh, it, it is. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, which is not to say, I mean, they're there and many of them are there for very good reasons. They care yes, about the church. Absolutely. They want to be mm -hmm. Catholic. But that interior ish, that interior journey hasn't, mm. in their experience, wasn't talked about. No one modeled it for them, talked about it, helped them make the journey intentionally. Uh, a lot of them don't even know it's a journey that you can make um, right. still. So, or they're trying and it's like, but I don't know I don't how. know. Like or I'm trying or to I, pray. I think I'm, if I do more stuff, maybe that'll change. Yes. I, I mean, there's all kinds right. of, the stories vary tremendously, of course. But, of course. Yeah. but yes, roughly. And we know 
even that's we've run into clergy that's been true religious mm -hmm. there's all kinds of reasons people are deeply engaged with the church with their local parish mm -hmm. that kind of thing and they're they're good reasons there's all kinds of good reasons to do that yes yeah. absolutely yeah these are like you said great people with great intent nine 9.9 .9 times out of 10, yeah. or maybe 10 out of 10. Like, yeah, they I mean, absolutely uh, nobody's, there, nobody's there with bad intent. I don't think they bother. If you had bad intent, you just walk these days. You don't hang around. I couldn't agree or more. Or unless you're, yeah, unless nobody your expects spouse, you to go to church. you know, drags you or something. But um, it's, but yeah, but roughly most, the vast majority, to be honest, the vast majority of our practicing yeah. population has never moved into openness or beyond. And so, and so think about the impact that, oh, sorry, think about the impact that has, Sherry, on parish renewal. So oh. that's what I do. I coach pastors and their leadership teams to bring it up. And so you think about the, the pushback they come up against at times. That's why I always say, if we don't start with evangelization, we're going to be changing behaviors, but not changing hearts. But until we change hearts, that behavior is going to be really hard to impact. And what's really like, we're important not trying to for leaders and pastors and everyone to understand is that <clears throat> we obviously we filter what we hear through our own experience yes. and our own understanding because that's just how human beings process stuff and mm -hmm. so someone could be preaching to you about discipleship and you it you know does not compute a lot of it does not compute so you filter out the stuff that doesn't compute and you hang on yeah to one piece of it um and so we and we've run into it everywhere when the not only do people you know make this journey but whole cultures the whole parish culture makes the journey too amen as people change as they grow in their spiritual lives they send ripples of change out into the culture but as mm. the culture change it makes it much easier and faster for people to move spiritually and the goal of course is we want to foster a culture that supports this journey and makes it faster and easier and uh, more you know you're not by yourself you're not this yeah. weird person making this trying to swim upstream for reasons you yeah. don't understand that taking religion a little bit too seriously yeah. yeah yeah but they're really supporting you so gotcha in a if the culture is stuck in the parish of almost a, a mm -hmm. typical standard diocesan parish in the united states the spirit the spiritual culture of a typical diocesan parish is stuck at early curiosity almost all the leaders that's where they're wow. pretty much at they haven't moved into openness yet when more and more people make that journey um and we it's where we discovered the power of what we call the prayer of openness which is a super one of the mm. simplest most powerful universally you can use it in almost any ministry setting but you just just give people a chance to tell god in their own words that mm. Okay, maybe I'm not certain you're there, and maybe I don't think you care, and maybe I don't know any of that stuff. But if you are there, like I'm, hi, uh, I'm open, you know? I mean, I that was my turning point. I When I tell these stories of people praying these prayers of openness, people come out of the woodwork. One of the, one of the major leaders that in another country that I've worked with came from a completely non-christian non-theist background he was in a religious tradition that had right. no god of any kind no personal god yeah. he started praying that prayer as an eight-year-old spontaneously in a complete oh, void wow. no one around him in his family his friends his culture he just said god if you're there show yourself wow. to or somehow you know 
Yeah. He prayed that for eight years before he was baptized at 20. And now he is one of the foremost leaders in his archdiocese, you know, at a lay level. Okay. But when we tell these stories about these prayers of openness, one person after another says, I did that. And I didn't know anybody else. It was a turning point for me as a young adult. That was my adult conversion. I was really old. I was 20. Okay. But I was, you know, mature and sophisticated and ready to deal with this. And, um, you know, but I've had, I've had people say, priests say what I did that when I was 11, I didn't know. And a lot of us, the Holy spirit was prompting us, calling us to, to just open the door internally, no matter where we started. And a lot of us did it quietly and privately. We had no idea this was that other people were doing it. We thought it was like this incredibly weird thing that had happened to us. And in fact, keep it a secret. It's it's a secret. But now we can actually encourage, we can give people space, uncoerced, yes. free space, no pressure, you know, nothing like that, but a space where you, you set the stage for it and then you give them a chance to tell God, I'm open. And we've now incorporated that into the called and gifted, into the interviews that we do, we, you know, all this sort of thing. And we right at the beginning of the workshop. We've revised it all. It's all now online and all this stuff. And um, the first thing we do is we say, these gifts are given to you for the sake of following Jesus as his disciple. And because Jesus is going to send you to someone and there is someone out there who is waiting for what you have been given to give. And it matters that you say yes. But I said, before we start, the main thing is wherever you are in your lived relationship with God, and you can be mm -hmm. anywhere. Okay. And we know that. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Wherever you are, this is the moment to tell God you're open to more. Mm. You're open to whatever, because the, these gifts come right out of that lived relationship with God. And so we just yeah. matter-of-factly start it. We do it very matter-of-factly. This is not high emotion, high energy, high cringe factor right. stuff. But we just say, <laughs> and, and we give them just a moment of silence to talk to God in their own words. And then, you know, if I'm if i'm speak doing it i'll you know lead in a, a sort of united prayer and then we move on but then we bring come back right. to that throughout the workshop we come back to that in the interviews mm -hmm. we give them a, you know and so we're just because we know um what has happened that what makes something like alpha powerful or some of the other great evangelizing mm -hmm. experiences yes. it's the average person the average catholic who's starting back maybe at at early trust, if they, they're not a trust, they won't show up at all to these mm -hmm. sorts of things. But there's right. trust there. Maybe it's just a friend or somebody who drags them, whatever. But they will not come out disciples. It's too big a journey. Almost now right. to go from trust into discipleship in 10 weeks, like in an alpha course, that doesn't mean alpha is not effective. That's not, that's just the right. nature of how we process now because we're starting so much further back and we move more slowly nothing wrong with alpha mm -hmm. but what happens um often is that people move at least one or two thresholds so if they can move into openness that's a big yes. deal it's a huge turning point for people and a lot of it's a a, a conf, an area that where a lot of their conflict interior conflict outer conflict emerges a lot of spiritual warfare around that a lot of prayer needs oh, wow. to be there for people just to make that because it feels crazy to like open the door even a crack to the God that may or may not be there and may or may not be good and may or may not care about me. I mean, that's a whole new world. 
And it's a whole new world for lots, the majority, honestly, the majority of our Catholic population. Sherry, you've just, again, put words to something I've been experiencing, but <laughs> I just have revelation as you're sharing that because of course, Alpha is a big part of how we help parishes mm -hmm. uh, evangelize. But I always say that people's experience on team is almost more powerful than their experience of Alpha. But that's why, because, you know, Alpha probably brings them to a place of maybe curiosity or, or maybe the beginning places of openness. Yeah. And, and that's all. And so it's coming back on team that that they're, they're just in a different place. And so they're able to receive more. And that makes exactly. so much sense. And what you're saying, I mean, is really true. And I want you to hear every one of those, every threshold is like a mini conversion. These are, these are people true. walking into a whole new spiritual reality that they didn't even know existed. Amen. And so they're going like, wow. whoa, whoa, this is like, huh, what do I do now? You know, ah, I'm so excited. We <laughs> confuse that with discipleship. That, And the average Catholic like me doesn't know, I have a clue what to tell them. No, no, they're, we're just going, well, now they're excited, so we'll put them to work because that's all we know what to do, right? You put them through a retreat, got them excited. Uh, or we catechize them. Yeah, we catechize or, them. you know, we're going to get them involved. They're going to get involved, which is not bad either. But I'm just saying, it's it's understanding as we, everything we do mm. at the parish level. If I'm catechizing, if I'm got people in our CIA, yes. if I am doing youth ministry, if I am working with leadership, I am simultaneously helping them make this journey. Because almost, my this is just Sherry's very rough, and I say this publicly so I can say it here. Very rough, <laughs> uh, workers estimate, again, no studies. My best guess in the American church, about one and a half percent of Catholics are actually disciples. And that's better than anywhere else in the West. So that's not bad, guys. You have no idea when you leave right. this country, leave the US, in Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand. Canada. Any, mm -hmm. and, and any number of other places, Germany. I mean, we've worked in a number of places, okay. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh my gosh, okay. Uh, we thought it was bad. Now I know what threat oh, it's true. looks like. Oh, it's um, true. I so, love working in the U.S. and I work all over the place too. Yeah. And it's like, man, you guys don't know how good you have it. And yet it's still, like you say, 1.5% in the U.S. And so yeah. it's like, that's, and you know. Now, you know, but if we understand the journey and especially, that's why the, the turning point into openness is the most crucial thing right now, mm -hmm. because it, it opens the whole horizon to more. If somebody enters, or even let's say, because we, and through the called and gifted, we see people moving also from trust into curiosity and and then into early openness. Uh, mm -hmm. So it has it almost, it has, it's like most of the really good stuff that, that sort of raises this issue and gives you a chance to wrestle with it. Mm -hmm. What we can expect is that as a first go round, Yes. They will move at least one, maybe two thresholds. Hmm. And every one of those is a victory. Every one of those is they're saying yes to grace. They're responding yes. to a call of God. This is a big thing for them. But so, for instance, like called and gifted might be a really great entry place because it's because people are so intrigued by it and it doesn't um, 
it just draws everybody. We get all kinds of people, including non-Catholics and non-Christians and people who are below sure. zero and all this stuff. I mean, we get everybody because they're so intrigued by the idea itself. It's very personal. Okay. Right. Um, so, and then the other spiritual stuff some comes as a surprise. And, uh, but we watch people move and then when they come out, you don't want to drop them. That's really crucial. If somebody right. has moved into openness, you, you can't just throw them back into the big Catholic ocean and hope they won't drown um, because they, that's really important. They have now moved beyond the norm of the community, beyond the norm of almost all the Catholics they know. Mm. And we can't just leave them there. Um, you know, if, if it were me, I'd probably, you know, people post, Alpha, uh, post called and gifted, it's often really good that they go into something like alphas or an evangelized, a charismatic right. experience where you can grapple with mm. who Jesus is. But now you're starting mm -hmm. from, oh, I have, I just got a sense that there really is a God who cares about me. And so now I have somewhere to connect all the stuff we're telling about Jesus. Mm. And that he isn't, as one person told me, well, you know, God is this nasty rule enforcer, but Jesus is my friend. And I said, well, wait a second, how does that work? How can that be true? She says, well, that's simple. Jesus isn't God. So Jesus can be my wow. buddy because he's a good guy. But God is something totally other. And if, you, if we don't help people move past the I can't trust God, which usually in their mind amounts mm. to the Father, okay? We know it's the Trinity, right. but you know what I mean. Okay. Um, Yes, I do. We don't help them address that. They're stuck permanently. They will not move beyond early curiosity. And mm -hmm. and you can send them, you know, that is what has to be addressed. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. It doesn't have, it could be all kinds right. of retreats. It could be all yeah. kinds of evangelizing events. It could be something as simple as a call and gifted. It could be, there's a whole lot of ways people make this journey. Yes. But yeah. We have to understand that's the great question right now hmm. at the parish level, at the uh, university, at the campus ministry level, even at the diocesan level. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of our leaders haven't made that journey yet. And that means huge parts of, even though they go to seminary and all, huge parts of the tradition don't resonate. Um, yes. They, you know, because that, that foundation isn't quite there yet. It can happen really fast, um, but people need a lot of support, right. a lot of prayer, a lot of spiritual warfare happens around that transition. Um, yes. So, hmm. Say more about that for if somebody's listening and they're like, okay, I understand what you said so far. Hold on, spiritual warfare? What do you mean? It's now because you mean, as you get close, uh, as you, be, you become more and more curious, and maybe you're curious now getting curious about Jesus, and you're getting closer and closer mm. to this crucial transition point, a lot of interior anxieties rise up because, mm -hmm. because inside, you know, yeah, I'm not making a commitment, but I am opening a door to who knows what. And only know only only God knows who might come through that door, right? And what I might find. So that's high. There's a lot of anxiety about that. It may feel really mm -hmm. crazy. It may feel like you're th almost throwing yourself over a precipice of some kind. 
Mm. On the other hand, people around you start to notice something's happening. Right. It starts to become, you're, you're just asking different questions. You've got different priorities. You're doing weird things. You're, you're saying weird stuff. And people go, what's with my friend mm. or my, my sibling or my, you know, my, this person I'm close to? And they unconsciously start putting pressure on you. Mm-hmm. And this can even happen if the majority of Catholics are back, say, at early trust. And that's where the majority are, even those who attend mm-hmm. work, who attend mass. Yes, And you move beyond that. There's all kinds of subtle ways that people, by the questions they ask, by their physical mm-hmm. discomfort, when you talk about things or raise certain issues, they let you know you've like said something wrong or that's how it registers with you. You feel like, I don't know, people are acting weird and they're, they're uncomfortable mm-hmm. and am I doing something wrong here? And it just raised, so there's ex, there's external anxieties that rise in relationships. Mm-hmm. And they, I think, to be honest, the enemy is using all of this mm-hmm. to, you know, just magnifying it. Pull you back. To pull you back so that you will not, you will not cons- pers- persevere in following. Um, and we have to be aware of how tricky this is and how mm-hmm. much support people need. This isn't this isn't primarily yet a catechetical thing. Catechesis comes into its own when you're much further along on the journey. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but this is more accompaniment. Uh, we call it being an Ananias, like the the, mm. the mentor that, the, you know, that God called yeah. to mentor St. Paul before he was baptized, you know, through that whole conversion process. And, uh, you know, but he, it's, it's just to be, and we train people, we have a whole Ananias training about how to help people, just ordinary Catholics, become low-level evangelizing companions for people, especially these early transitions. And without freaking out, and if somebody, if you realize something's happening in someone's life, you'll be encouraging and going, wow, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that fantastic? And sort of, oh, right. what's wrong with you? You know, um, you're making me uncomfortable. Oh, you know, such a helpful conversation. I'm just, I'm learning so much. So what, what's threshold number four? Threshold number four, if you move into openness, threshold number four is what we call seeking. And that's mm-hmm. a transition into openness. If you, if you now, you become more and more open to God, to the possibility of his mm-hmm. loving life-changing presence and then you become more and more curious about jesus which of course we that's if they're going to be disciples they want to wrestle with him and perhaps they're reading scripture now and they're hearing the charisma yeah. and all this sort of thing going to church and they're grappling and, with yeah. well do i believe that what does that well wait a second what is that i've never heard that before what does it mean yeah. for me do i think that's real do i believe that and what am i going to do about it that's a whole nother journey and that's what people it's seeking. That's when catechesis comes into its own. Uh, ideally, if you're an RCIA, if you've just moved into seeking, that's the time you should move into the formal catechumenate because now they're going to cover mm. all the theology that is now, it's going to make sense to you because you're asking the questions it's an answer to. And you're open to the answer. You're open to yeah. the answer. You trust the source of the answer. You do. So it's mm. a totally different thing. If we're just dumping lots of you know doctrine, on people who are back, as we often do, who are back at the very early stages, they yes. can't take it in and they can't wrestle with it. Um, yeah. And so 
that that seeking is i mean is that now i'm i'm wrestling for the first time with maybe i will follow jesus as his disciple i'm not made a commitment mm. yet i'm thinking about it um i'm thinking about it you know but all this needs companionship we need oh. to be forming and regular catholics walking with regular catholics obviously a pastor cannot do this all by themselves no right they're not supposed to no. um you know impossible it's impossible it's impossible and our parishes especially in the north america are big and they have thousands of people yes. in them and it's impossible so but those of us but they're just ordinary catholics can do that for one another mm. and walk with each other through this and then there's that moment where the person who's thinking you know it, you can think of seeking it's like um it's like i'm thinking about getting you know i'm maybe i'm thinking about getting engaged I'm, I'm at the, uh, this is this is no longer casual curiosity. Now it's intense curiosity. This is getting personal. This is going to change my whole life. And when I'm going to change my whole life, and I'm going to commit to you. I mean, that's what you're wrestling with at that yeah. stage. And then helping people, of course, we call it dropping your nets, but just to use a biblical image, but it's basically the process of helping someone in whatever way, you know, is appropriate for them mm. to say, yes to Jesus, to walking with Jesus as his disciple in the midst of his church and beginning mm -hmm. what the church calls the second and lifelong conversion. So it's the journey isn't over, you're not done, right. but now you've gone through the preliminaries and now you're beginning the primary journey. And the thing is, of course, as you and I know, the vast majority of our people, even uh, the majority of our leadership, Mm -hmm. has not yet made that journey and that mm -hmm. changes everything because what the thing is in 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 our situation we're no longer in christendom everybody i think recognizes that now um we're in a whole new culture we're in what i i call it yeah. i call it missiondom um people have different language for it but mm -hmm. it's just like that you know we're in, we're in a totally different cultural world in that setting we being a disciple is going to feel like swimming upstream all the time. Mm -hmm. And you have to know that there's a, you have to be like a salmon that's spawning. You have to have a goal. You have to know it's important. You have to want to, you know, make right. to swim upstream. So yeah. it's uh, so basically the difference, the thing that we, we talk about this in making disciples, but I didn't put it in the book FID. But after discipleship, there's the issue of growing into being apostles, to be right. basically men or women, mature Christians who are men or women for others, who are generative, who are have are discerning God's call, are answering that call, discerning their charisms, providing leadership in all different levels of the church's life, taking and creating the new opportunities, taking the apostolic risk. And every generation, the church either sinks or swims, depending on the percentage of her people who become full-blown, mature Christian adults or disciples yes. or apostles. And in time, and that was the work you were originally about, wasn't yes, it? Yes, and that's what that was what I was originally about. <laughs> in times of revival, and we've seen enormous times like the Great French Revival in the 17th century, yeah. extraordinary number of Catholics at, from every background. And all, no background, poor, uneducated, lay, married, single, religious, priests, nobility, you know, bishops, mm -hmm. the whole, every, across the spectrum, 
enormous number of apostles, full-blown, mature apostles emerged. At the same time, they had different calls, different vocations, different charisms, different life experiences, but they were collaborating with each other. They were supporting each other. They were stealing from each other. They were, um, you know, I mean, it was just, they were just playing off each other and supporting each other and knew each other. And, and together they transformed the French Catholic Church, after 32 years of religious civil wars in which 20% of Paris died, I mean, we're talking stuff we haven't even begun right. to dream of, the horrors they lived through. Mm. And out of that came a tremendous revival that changed the course of the French Catholic Church for 150 years and changed, and through that influence, spread the faith to Canada to um, yes. Southeast Asia, all those places. And basically, in many ways, they created the world we now take for granted out of whole cloth. So many of the structures that we take for granted, seminaries, you know, retreat houses mm -hmm. for the laity. And, you you know, I could go on and on. It's a, I've got all these, I've got a whole history library on the subject. But the point is, we have seen great revivals happen in the Catholic world. Yes. Okay. They weren't instantaneous, mm -hmm. but at the heart of it, in every situation, especially in heart, when, when Christendom, they, they lived in smashed, the shattered Christendom mm. that was destroyed by religious civil wars. Okay. What enabled them to emerge was the emergence of all these disciples and apostles mm. who were who were, it was the most intensely Christocentric time that the French church had seen in hundreds of years. They were extremely Christocentric. They, and they took everyone's vocation seriously. And they, they, there was an enormous renewal, the renewal of four places. The local diocesan parish was seen yeah. as a place of mission. Lay people were seen as disciples and apostles in their own light. There was a total renewal of diocesan priesthood and there was an incredible renewal of religious life and it all you know so there were four cores to this revival there must have been some saints come out of that time who were the saints that came out of that oh time? well you know? francis de sales would be the okay. first the, the great figure of the first generation um vincent saint vincent de paul of course louise de wow. Marillac, saint john de Chantel. um i could and then there's a lot of people who I, I love their stories, but most people aren't aware of them, Barbara Carré, et cetera, who just had phenomenal impacts on so many people. Barb was just a housewife. She was a married woman and a housewife. When she died, one of her priest friends said she was personally responsible for 10,000 conversions. He said, because she just liberated grace wow. just by talking to people. And he said, and this was true, including of many priests. She was instrumental in their conversions as well. So I'm just saying, we've seen it before. It's not like, you know, the yes. evangelical world did not create this. They didn't invent it. We did. They got it from us, okay? Um, and we have seen it happen before, but helping people make that journey is where it's gotta start. Oh. And for us, of course, right now, the crucial piece, I think, is helping people move into openness when suddenly this whole new world opens up of relationship with a living God who cares about you. And everything now becomes, starts to make sense. 
and it's it is it's this whole new horizon that is um in, in for people who are who are involved in the church that's where a big horizon is now for people who are way far away what we call far yes. evangelism mm -hmm. a big horizon is pre-evangelism and building those those structures of trust the bridges of trust and fostering early curiosity is really curious, is really the crucial thing for them. Sherry, this has been such an amazing conversation. I would love to have you back because I want to talk about the Catherine Siena Institute and I want to talk about, there's so many things I want to talk about that we haven't talked about, but I think that's a really neat place to wrap up. And if those of you that are listening, boy, I hope you listen to this podcast with some friends and pause it from time to time and talk about what you've heard, ask questions, discuss it, beat it around, because I found this such an incredible conversation. I'm going to do the same thing with this podcast with my friends because it has been such a practical, insightful, wise learning, all born out of listening. Yeah. yeah. Sherry, and that has been you. that, I mean, people ask, I say, almost all of it came from listening. Listening, mm -hmm. listening to God, listening to the church's tradition, and then listening endlessly to real people. Yeah. Thank you for all you're doing in the church. I believe that this is a revival that's happening in our generation. When I see people like you, people like Father James Mallon, people what Patrick Lencioni's doing, and so many others uh, are doing, Dave Nodar, just so many people working mm -hmm. so hard with this, with this heart, with this passion uh, that you speak of. And um, anyway, thank you so much for being with us today. That was a lot of fun. Oh, well, it was great. It was great to have the the conversation. And can I just mention one more thing? Just Please, I'd love to. Um, well, if somebody's interested, we do have a 24-7 Facebook Forming Intentional Disciples forum that's open to anybody. Um, we do ask you to apply. Uh, you know, we like to ask, get a sense of your background. But we have over 12,000 people on it. <clears throat> and this is all we talk about 24-7. Um, it's 10 years old now because it was I, it was, I was asked to do it to support people who are reading the book. Yeah. But it's this, and we talk about this at every level. We have people from all over the world, um, but talking about this at every level of the church's life. So you'd be most welcome. It is one way. It's a, a small way. We're trying to replicate some of the dynamics of the generation of saints, yeah. the great French revival um, mm -hmm. and giving, so there's a place to have, it's a one of a kind, uh, so far as I know, conversation. Um, That's a great way to connect so it's the and follow up this conversation. Facebook forum. There you go. So you guys head over and and join the conversation and network and meet some great people that exactly. are wrestling with these same principles. I think there's a great energy that the spirit unleashes when we are with other people that that share this common passion. And so thank you, Sherry, for all the work that you're doing. And uh, I look forward to having you on again soon. That would be fun. Thank you very much, Ron. It's great. You're welcome. And thanks for listening, everybody. God bless you. And we will see you next time. I want to encourage you, as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time, and remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact.